going on, everybody? Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. This is episode number 268 of the show. And today we're talking to Shannon Kearns, who wrote a book called In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. I told Shannon this in the episode, but when I got the book, I made an assumption without reading it. The assumption was, okay, here's a book written by this guy, a transgender man, He's going to tell me how he's come to grips with a lot of the, the passages in the Bible that were probably used to shame and exclude him in the past, right? So I'm thinking clobber verses, any kind of verse that was used or has been used or is used to outcast uh, specifically transgender people. He's going to tell me how he's had this journey with scripture and how he's come to reconcile uh, his experience with these verses. That's what I thought was going to happen. But I was super surprised because that's not what this book is at all. I mean, there might be hints of that here and there, but really what this book does is he takes, he masterfully takes some really familiar stories uh, in the Bible and he retells them through the lens of his personal experience. So it's, it has like a memoirish feel to it in a sense. And then at the end of like each story and, and woven throughout the story, he leaves us with like application galore. <laughs> he leaves us with all of these amazing applications that we can take from the story and graft into our lives, regardless of who we are, regardless of where we've been in the past, where we are in the present, where we're headed in the future in our lives. Uh, this book has something for everybody. And the biggest takeaway for me, the biggest takeaway, and we talk about this in the show as well, is that you can't read the Bible apart from your experience. It's impossible. Everybody brings their experience to the text. That's why I get a kick out of churches that say like, oh, we're a Bible-preaching church. You know, we only preach the Bible. Okay, well, your preacher is bringing his experience to the text before he delivers his ideas to you. You can't read anything apart from your experience. And I talk in the, sh in the episode about an example in seminary that we had in my hermeneutics class, which is a class about how to exegete or how to study the Bible. And a, a, an example that really magnified this idea that you can't read the Bible apart from your experience, whether you're male, you're female, you're gay, you're lesbian, you're transgender, whatever it is, you've lived in poverty your whole life, you've lived in riches your whole life, whatever your experience is, you're bringing that with you to these stories and they're aiding in your interpretation and understanding of it. And so it's always helpful to listen to a story being shared from the lens of somebody who's different than you. And that's what this book does uh, in the margins, a transgender man's journey with scripture. So buckle up, get ready. This is a fun one. Uh, I'll put the link to the book and Shannon stuff in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you're going to find links to my book, Rethinking Everything, my other book, Emerging from the Rubble. Uh, also Patreon, if you want to support the show financially, uh, you can do that by giving anywhere from $3 a month up to $100 a month. And I'll also link to a, a one-time support uh, button on my website, where if you want to just give any kind of donation, $10, $20, $100, $500, whatever, you can do it right there. Just click the button and you can make whatever kind of donation you want, a one-time donation. So anyway, all of that to say, my friends, that is all I've got. This is episode number 268 with Shannon Kearns in the margins. Enjoy. Lights out, I'm your favorite Too many ways, been in your place There's delays Added up the signs, it was on the table Driving and vibing, bring the beat later Wanna make it bigger, just a little bit of Labor showing up to my space, I'm a fashion dealer I'm your biggest bidder, meet me in the middle I just don't wanna settle Under these lucid dreams Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, today we're sitting down with a brand new guest. His name is Shannon Kearns. He's the author of an amazing book called In the Margins, A Transgender Man's Journey with Scripture. And so Shannon, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Definitely. So I feel like we we have a 
a lot we could talk about. We could probably fill a series <laughs> of conversations, <laughs> but I was hoping to start at least with you and your story and kind of see where we go from there because you were raised uh, fundamentalist evangelical. So join the club, right? And then uh, you you came out and in your email, you told me that you came out twice. Uh, you're transgender ordained priest. So maybe fill in the gaps for us and take us into your story because I, I feel like your story and the things you're going to share are going to help uh, our people with a lot of things that they're thinking about and wrestling with as well in their life. So your story, fill in the gaps, whatever direction you want to go, take us there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I, I grew up in rural Pennsylvania in mm-hmm. a church that now I would say was fundamentalist evangelical. Right. But at the time we just seemed like the normal Christians. Yeah. Like a normal I, church. Right. And I think that that's so important. I, I've been thinking about this a lot because of the, um, you know, the shiny happy people yep. documentary that just came out as we're recording. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how some people will be like, well, I didn't grow up at a church like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really like the substance is the same. The style might be different. Sure. And my church definitely didn't look like that. But when you, when we got down under it, you know, that umbrella of like, who is the head of the household and mm-hmm. all of the, like that is all um, the church that I grew up in. Yep. And that church was really my entire world growing up in a rural community. Um, didn't have a lot of access to things. And this was the eighties and nineties. So also didn't have access to things like cable television and Google. Like right. none of that <laughs> existed. Well, cable existed. We didn't have it. Um, and I was homeschooled from seventh through 12th grade. And so mm-hmm. the church really became my entire life. It became my social group. It became where I was spending all of my time. Uh, and so that totally shaped how I was moving through the world. Um, and I started to have some questions when I was in junior high, not necessarily about sexuality or gender identity, but about like, is what we're saying as a church actually how we're living? Mm. <laughs> I just, I remember like looking around my congregation and being like, there are a lot of people that aren't here. And I think that they're not here because like, we're not making space for them. Yeah. And that really started to shift how I was feeling called into ministry, how I was doing ministry. And I mean, at this point, ministry was looking like really bad church drama and mission trips. Um, (laughs) But I was at least thinking about some things of like, what are we talking about? What are we not talking about? Uh, And I started writing and it was in the midst of like writing and feeling called to ministry and grappling with who wasn't in my church um, that I started to get a reputation for being a bit of a rabble rouser of asking mm. the questions that people did not want me to be asking. <laughs> and then that just like continued, uh, <laughs> went to an evangelical Christian college and really started to push the envelope there. Um, and it was in college that I really started to have language for sexuality, at least. Um, mm. I still didn't really understand gender identity. I didn't really know that trans people existed. They, we weren't really talking about trans folks. Um, this was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. Mm. And so I started to to say that I was struggling with homosexuality. I'm using air quotes. Like you had to say it like that. You couldn't just say. Um, and started to come out to some folks um, who, you know, some people took it really well. Some people didn't. And mostly I think at that point it was like, I wasn't acting on it. And so mm-hmm. everyone was like, okay, well, like you've got this thing. We've all got our things. You're wrestling, uh, right? Yeah. You're wrestling, right? Yeah. We've all got stuff. We've all got sin that we're wrestling with. Mm-hmm. Um and graduated from college and moved back home and started a job as a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like went back into the closet, just decided I'm just, I'm going to be celibate for my whole life. Um, and then soon after that, it was like, well, I'm going to be at least celibate while I've got this job because <laughs> I was not out to them when they hired me. I was like, this doesn't, this doesn't feel good. Um, I met someone while I was in that job, not, not at all affiliated with the church, met someone outside of the church um, and kind of fell in love and was like, oh, okay, I gotta, I gotta deal with some things. So I ended up leaving that church, um, coming out for the first time, taking a year off and bartending to try to figure out like, am I still called to ministry? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. Um, Decided that I was enrolled in seminary and, um, and actually came out as trans my second year of seminary. Wow. So, you know, lots of lots of deconstructing was happening during that time, lots yeah. of um, journeying. But like, that's a real broad strokes overview of 
of at least up to the, the second coming out. Yeah, the second coming. <laughs> yes. Did you um question like when you went back, you said you went back into the closet when you were a youth pastor, when you went back into that place, did you do so with that fundamental, still have that fundamentalist mindset that like there's something like there's this is sin that I'm I'm dealing with, so I'm going to stuff it away and kind of go back into the closet? Or were you at that point realizing that this is who I am, but I still feel like I need to put it away for the sake of this job or whatever? Like, did you, was that wrestling match going on in your head at that time? Absolutely. I, yeah. I think at that, at the, at the point that I like went back into the closet, mm-hmm. I was in a space where I knew that I wasn't choosing this, mm-hmm. right? Like this wasn't, I, I wasn't choosing to be gay. Like this, there was something intrinsic in me that was leading to this. Yeah. Um, and I didn't think that that identity was sinful. I had done enough work and had read enough um, mm-hmm. and had started my own kind of theological process to, mm-hmm. to say this identity is not wrong. I was still really on the fence around like, can I be in a relationship? Can I act on this identity? Mm-hmm. Um and by the time I left that job, I I had completely deconstructed and was in a place where I was like, absolutely, absolutely, mm-hmm. you can you can be who you are and you can live out that identity. Like that is kind of the point, right? Yeah. Uh, but that was a long journey to get there and a lot, a lot of work and a lot yeah. of anguish and angst um, yeah. to get there. Did you or did that deconstruction like that was going on? Was that part of the reason why you left? the role that you're in or were you just kind of done with that sort of thing? Like, did, did you feel like, you know, I'm deconstructing, have all these new beliefs, these new thoughts about, about life and faith and all these things. And I can't be in this role being something else while I have all this stuff going on in my mind. Did that have something to do with driving you from that role? Wasn't, but that was not because of me. That was because I ended up really lucky to be in a church that was much more progressive than I was. Um, and I think took a chance on hiring someone who was <laughs> less progressive. Yeah. Um, I, I will say that the church, uh, so the, when I first started working there, I worked with this amazing pastor who really like, I, I, I also have to say, if you've seen pictures of me, I've looked like a 13-year-old boy since I was 13. So, like, <laughs> the idea that I was, like, queer was not a surprise to anyone. Like, right. so this man being able to see through me was, like, not surprising. Sure. Um, and so he was passing me a lot of books and connecting me to people in a really gentle way of and really trying to let me know, like, it's okay that you're dealing with this. Like, there mm. are other people that have done this work. Um yeah. But then he left and the new pastor that they hired was super, super homophobic. And so my sense of of being in ministry at this, continuing in ministry at this place was like twofold. One, I don't think I can work with this new pastor that they've hired. Mm. And two, I can no longer, I was getting to a place where I could no longer have this split life, right? Like I could no longer be one thing in in church and in my ministerial life and another thing at home um and that kind of split in identity was just i couldn't do it anymore i needed to be an integrated whole human being in all places i needed to be able to show up as my full self in ministry and i could feel that like i wasn't doing ministry well because Mm -hmm. i couldn't be I couldn't show up as all of who I was. Um, And that to me was more of like, I can't be in a place that is requiring me to leave half of me at home. Like this isn't going to work for me anymore. And this isn't good for these kids either, right? It's not good for the community. Do you think that that first pastor, had he not left, would there have been a, a, a space for you to be your full self? Like for you to... Um, you know, come out, so to speak, like would would he have a have created that space for you? Like whereas this other pastor came in who you said was homophobic, I would imagine that he would have shut all that down. Yeah. Yeah. It's un it's unclear to me um if if that space would have been I mean it's also just a different time. Sure. Right. I, I think that now probably yes. Yeah. Back then, I'm not sure. Not sure. But no. there would have been at least more space or more yeah. space for me to to kind of grapple and to yeah. have some support and grappling. Got it. So fast forward now, these years later, what sort of work are you doing now? You wrote you wrote this book. 
Um, I know you have a, a couple websites that you're in, you know, involved with. So what kind of work are you doing now? Yeah. So um, about 10 years ago, Brian G. Murphy and I co-founded QueerTheology.com. Mm -hmm. um, so that's the biggest part of, of kind of my online presence and work. Um, and it's a, a website that's really for people who want to integrate LGBTQ plus identity and spirituality. Um, so I am part of the Christian tradition. Brian is part of the Jewish tradition. Um, and so like for anyone who's trying to say, I, I want there to be a space where I can show up fully as a queer and or trans person yeah. and also as a person of faith. Like we're helping people do that integrative work, mm. which sometimes looks like how do you get out of the evangelicalism in which you were raised? Um, sometimes it looks like how do you leave Christianity well <laughs> right, and leave it entirely and right. like that's the best way to do integrative work yeah. um, and sometimes it does look like I want to bring my faith and my sexuality and gender identity together yeah. um, and so that's a combination of resources and we have a podcast and online courses and an online community uh, and then I also do theological writing um, which is the book in the margins yeah. uh, which is also, which is both like a memoir and also a retelling of 10 Bible stories from a trans perspective. Yeah. Um, and then I'm also a playwright and and do like writing that's not theological, although theology keeps creeping in, even when yeah. I don't want it to. Just playing everything. <laughs> exactly, exactly. That's awesome. So you're, you're wearing a lot of different hats. <laughs> yes. So tell us a little bit more then about, about the book, because I want to say off the bat, the book is not what I expected the book to be now like when you pick up a book you assume it's going to be something and i did that with this book but it's it wasn't at all what i assumed it was going to be because i assumed i was you were going to be looking at these these scriptures through a transgender uh lens and then kind of show us how scriptures can affirm and encourage transgender people that was the mindset i went into the book with and although there are some of those instances i think in the book the book really looks at these various stories like you just mentioned through the lens of your own experience and then what I thought was really, really interesting was that you you make the takeaways in the book, you make like the applications in the book applicable for everybody. Like it's not just for LGBTQ people or specifically for transgender people, but really like I found myself looking at these stories going, oh, like I never saw that in the story before. And then like reading, going back in my Bible and reading the story and feeling all challenged all over again because of this unique experience that you brought to the text. Like, do you think, is that a fair uh, explanation of what people can expect in this book. Yeah. And that's, I'm so glad that you said that because that's exactly what I was hoping for. Mm. Right. Um, yep. I, I think that for me, one of the things that's really important when doing theology from the margins is mm. that we name the context that we're doing it from. And so I'm naming a really yeah. particular identity, right? Like I'm yep. a white transgender man in the United States. Yep that can't help but color how I'm reading these texts, right? Like it's, I can't not bring that to the text when I'm reading it. Yeah. And I think the danger is when folks pretend that we can somehow read these texts objectively, neutrally, without bringing ourselves to them, right? Like we all are doing that all the time. Yeah. Um, I think the the gift of people that read from the margins, and this is like trans folks, queer folks, womanist, Black theology, Latinx theology, is that we're naming really specifically, like we're reading from a perspective, a particular perspective, and that yeah. that perspective, of course, shapes how we're reading these texts. Yeah. And also, like what I have found is that when I read work by other theologians who are doing work from the margins, I, of course, am learning things about myself and how I was reading scripture, but also like my place in the world. Yeah. Um, and so it was really important to me that this not just be about like, how can we affirm trans people with scripture, but also like, what does reading scripture from a trans perspective open up for all of us, yeah. right? There's something yeah. actually really important and beautiful for the whole church, the whole body of of faith to learn from trans folks. And I think that's like, not just theology, that's like the world too, right? Yeah. <laughs> Gender relationships, like yeah. trans people have a lot to teach us about our bodies, all of those things. Sure. Yeah. I've talked about this on the, on the podcast before, but I had this professor in seminary. I went to a very evangelical seminary and, and my theology back then was in a much different space, but I had this professor for hermeneutics class who really 
challenge me. He was much more progressive than the school. He's no longer with the school anymore, which is probably part of the reason why. <laughs> and he's actually been on the podcast before to talk to me. Uh, but it's funny. But in that class, I remember I'll never forget we had this this one this uh, one one week where we divided into groups, and it was like we were all you know, maybe three or four people in the group. And he said that I want you to read, give us all the same passage. And he said, I want you to read this passage of scripture, but each group is going to be a different type of person. So he said, your group over here is going to be people who you're living on the streets. Uh, you over here are going to be uh, staunch Calvinists. You guys over here are going to be, he went through all these different, every group was something different. And he said, now I want you to work as a group to put together a sermon on this particular passage from your point of view. And every every sermon was amazing in its own way, but it was they were all different. They're all radically different because of the perspective that people brought to the passage. And I think that what, what you just talked about, how you are bringing your own unique uh, background, your, your own unique life to the text and the stories, I think just shines a light on things in entirely different ways. And for me in that class, that just blew my mind because I was always taught there's only one way to read the scriptures. You know, it, it means what it means and it doesn't mean anything else. And that's it. But that really opened my eyes to, wow, like, we all bring our experiences to the text and we can all pull out something very unique from that. Yeah. And the danger, right? The danger is when we don't name where we're coming from and we yeah. do say, there's only one way to read the text and everyone has to read it this way. It's like, yeah, yeah well, this is how we get, this is how we get into trouble, right? right? And this is how we end up with really dangerous theology that, that harms people. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about, about the Bible then. Like as a transgender man who was raised in this evangelical world, I, I imagine like you, you, you bring this unique perspective to the text. You have ideas, you have lenses that maybe not everybody like myself is bringing to the text. So maybe talk to us about, about that, like about your relationship with the Bible, what makes it unique and how it has like evolved over time. Because a lot of our listeners are kind of in that place where their own thoughts about the Bible are evolving. Like they grew up in the place where it was, it means what it means and that's it. But now they're in this place where it means all these different things. They don't know what to do. So what does like your particular process look like in growing with the Bible? Yeah, so absolutely grew up uh, with uh, an idea that the Bible was inerrant, infallible, um, means what it means, yeah. right? Like, Don't written by God, ever, right? or, at least, <laughs> or at least, you know, dictated by God. Yeah. Um, and that that our job really was to, was to, like, uncover the meaning, but there was only one meaning. Yeah. And was also really taught that the Bible was God's love letter to us. So it's yes. this kind of combination of... Like it's this text that is instructive for your life. Every question that you could ever have about anything is answered in this text. And also like, it's a, it's a loving thing. Um, even when it's being disciplining. Do you remember that? Uh, do you remember that burlap to cashmere song? I just reminded oh, me yes. of that. Uh, yes. Was it basic instructions before leaving earth? Yes. Right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. It was exactly that. Right. Yeah. Um, and really really like carried on with that probably all the way up into my first job um and when I started to really ask a lot of questions and realize that the folks in my community were not willing to entertain those questions mm -hmm. that was a big that was a big thing for me of like well wait a second it, it if I'm not allowed to use the brain that God gave me to like yeah. bring to bear on these things. Like something is wrong here. Yeah. Me asking the question isn't the problem. Yeah. Um, and I started to really grapple with particularly, it was actually not stuff around sexuality and gender. It was more stuff around like, what did the death of Jesus mean? Um, this idea yeah. that like God had to kill God's own son but like, because of rules that God had set up, like something in that, it was like, something is not yeah. squaring for me. Right. <laughs> I have a lot of questions. Yeah. Um, and so I started to read all of these books and I'm reading books like outside of um, my evangelical world, uh, reading stuff by Philip Gullholly, uh, Gully and Mulholland, um, mm. you know, if God is love, if grace is true, stop, uh, lots of stuff around um, what did the death of Jesus mean? Yep. And 
the the real first crack for me came reading Bruce Bauer's um, Stealing Jesus, Rescuing Jesus from Fundamentalism. And he mm-hmm. talked about the rapture. And I had always grown up, you know, terrified of the rapture that Same. I was going to get left behind. Absolutely. Um, and I asked Jesus every I, night into my heart again and again yeah, and again. Yeah. Right. Just just to just to be clear. Yeah. And when I read that the rapture was invented by some English dude like 150 years ago, I like lost my mind. I was like, you mean this thing that has terrified me since I was four years old that right. I've been taught was handed down from Jesus himself was like <laughs> invented by John Nelson Darby. Like, right. what are you talking about? Yeah. Um. And that to me was like actually the first like real, real solid crack because I thought, well, if they lied to me about this, like what else have they lied about? Because I knew, I knew yeah. that my pastors would have known where this doctrine came from. Yeah. Um, and the fact that they chose not to tell us and pretended that it had, that had been always like, we'd all, we've always believed this. Yeah. That really set me on a journey to read everything. Yeah. And so then for me, for a while, I had to really put the Bible down. I couldn't read it because I couldn't not bring all of the interpretation that I had been taught growing up to the text. Like I couldn't actually read it with fresh eyes because I was so, so ingrained in a certain way of reading. And so I spent a bunch of time reading books about the Bible, which I think was really, really helpful for me Mm. um, because I read a lot of like what was happening in Rome and what was the political context and how would the earliest Christians have understood these stories and what are other ways that faithful Christians have interpreted these passages for centuries. But all of that helped me to kind of start to take apart the way that I had been taught to read the Bible and gave me some new tools for reading, which allowed me now to read it the way that I do as a collection of books and stories by people who are trying to make sense of what it means to be in relationship with the divine, what it means to be in relationship with one another, and what it means to be in relationship with themselves, right? Like it's a text of, of wrestling. It's a, it's a, it's not designed to be science or history. It's yeah. designed to be this collection of stories of people trying to make sense of the world. And when yeah. I read it that way, it's like, oh, well, I can understand that. I can yeah. find myself in that. <laughs> right. There's a place for me in that wrestling too, because yeah. like I'm still doing the same thing. All yeah. of us are, right? Yeah. We're trying to figure out what does it mean to be connected to the divine? What does it mean to to have good relationships with our community and our neighbors. What does it look like to be a citizen of the world when the world and the, and politics are doing things that are antithetical to our faith? Like, how do we, how do we move through that? And now when I, so now I'm like, Oh, I see, I see resonances all over the place yeah. that I was completely missing before. Yeah. I think that's a really important thing for people to hear. And we've said this before on the show, but just the fact that, it's okay to put your Bible away for as long as you need to. Right. Because I remember for myself, like I grew up in, I went to a private Christian school from the fourth through 12th grades. That was a super evangelical school. Then I went to Bible college for four years. Then I went to seminary for three years. So there's so many things that were like ingrained in my head. And like you just said, like I, I started having all these different kinds of questions. Like a lot of it came after my daughter was born because that like unearthed a lot of things in me. Like I, I've talked about how like the first time she was, she was in the NICU for like a, a couple of days and she reached out and grabbed my pinky. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I see like nothing but perfection in this child, but yet my theology tells me that she's sinful. And I'm like, I, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like if I see perfection in this child, like how can God, God, the creator, look at me or her or anybody else any differently? Like if I'm I hope a good father and God's the good, good father. Like, how is that? How Nothing it doesn't reconcile with me. And then I started thinking, like you said about like Jesus, like what's the whole deal with the cross? Like if he just died, like to take my sin, like God killed his kid. And I was thinking like, it has to be more than, it has to be something else going on in, in these stories than just that, because that seems too simplistic. It seems, it seems like too much put together. There's no mystery in that. And it just seems like a very mysterious story to me. So like I had all these different kinds of questions, but like you said, like I couldn't read my Bible any other way except through that lens. Yeah. And like, I, I struggled so much. I remember I went to find Brian McLaren on Twitter 
And I was like reading one of his books. I'm like, well, if this is true, then like, what about John 3, 16? Like, what do you do with that verse? Like, it seems so obvious to me. And he was so kind to like answer like all of my questions on Twitter. And then eventually he finally said to me, like, at some point, I just have to embrace the mystery of the text. And I couldn't do that. So I just put my Bible away for the longest time. And like you said, I was reading people like Barbara Brown Taylor. I was reading people like John Dominic Crossan, even like Bart Ehrman, people like that who are bringing a lot of these historical pieces to the story that I wasn't getting. And then I started to pick up my Bible again and read it through a much different lens. And a lot of things started jumping off the page that have always been there, but then I never saw it before. Yeah. Yeah. I think that you're absolutely right. That like being willing to put your Bible down, being willing to stop going to church for a while. Like those were some of the healthiest things that I did in my journey because I couldn't, there was a sense of like, you couldn't have the space to marinate on the questions while you were still in the pressure cooker. Right. Out of it yeah. and be like, Oh, okay. I, I can just let this happen. Um, and, and like, it's okay. And like lots and lots of people have wrestled with these questions. I'm not yeah. alone in wrestling. Um, I'm not alone in asking them and people are writing them, writing about them and, and, and that's all great. But even, yeah. even just being like, I'm allowed to ask questions was yeah. huge for me. Yeah. Um, and to be able to t- take the time to do that work. I-, I think that's the other piece of like deconstruction is really messy and it's really uncomfortable. And the push I think is to like, sometimes it's to rush through it, but yeah. it just needs, like you have to live through it yeah. and that's not comforting always, Yeah, but it's really yeah. important. It's really important that you give yourself the time to like, let it, let it all go. Sure. I can remember sitting in like fifth, sixth grade Bible class. We had Bible class, I think it was like every day when we were in middle school. And it was, you know, they were approaching the text as like this history book and a science book, you know, like telling us that the earth is 6,000 years old because of this and this. And, you know, these things that the Bible talks about, like these things really happened. And they would come up like in our history classes, like they would mesh these two subjects kind of together. And I remember even thinking like at that age, like I remember looking at this book and i'm like like i know that this wasn't just written like in like it wasn't like one guy went to starbucks and wrote the bible and like and sent it to the publisher and like i realized that these were texts that were collected over the course of time like there's got to be more to it than this and like now i'm in this place where like you said like i see these books as this collection of texts and it's only a handful of texts right because there's other texts out there that didn't make it into the bible so it's really just this handful of a larger collection of texts And when I look at it, like I see people wrestling with the same things I'm wrestling with. Like they're trying to understand who God is and what does it look like to walk this very visible life with this very invisible being? Who is this being? What is this being about? What does this being do? Like all those questions are coming up in the text. And I feel like I can find myself in the stories much more so because I bring my own questions to the text. And then I allow myself to kind of stand next to these writers and ask the same kind of questions that they're asking. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's where I'm at uh, these days. Question, follow-up question. What, what was like one of the hardest things for you to rethink regarding like your older theology, that theology that you were handed, like when you were a kid regarding the Bible or something like that, like what was one of the hardest things? Is there anything you got stuck on? Like anything that you were like hung up on that kept you up at night? Like those kind of questions. I mean, I, I think that the big fear was around like what if i'm wrong yeah right it wasn't necessarily a this is the this is the sticking point yeah but it was like the the fear wrapped up in hell in eternal damnation right in god smiting me um that was all wrapped up in the like if you if you're wrong about any of this god's gonna kill you um and I will say, like, that took a really long time to to let go of. And and it took longer than even, like, intellectually, I was in a place where I'm like, oh, this is my theology now. Yeah. And that fear would still come up at night. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it doesn't anymore. But it, like, that took a long time. Um, and I think that's important to say, because, like, we were many of us were indoctrinated yeah. to feel that fear and to feel yeah. that 
very viscerally and from very, very young ages. Like it's yeah. no wonder that takes time to recover from. Yeah. Right. Like that is just, it, it was, it's doing what it was designed to do. Yeah. Um, and also for me, the health I feel now on the other side of this journey yeah. is like nothing I experienced when I was still in fundamentalism. Yeah. I think you got to give yourself grace, right? Because yeah. Yes. I can think of myself like as a as a third grader, like literally laying in bed at night, terrified yeah. that like I was going to either die, my parents were gonna die, and like they didn't believe the right things. Like I'm yeah. going to school, so I must believe the right things because they're teaching me the things. But like, what if my parents die? And like feeling this immense pressure to have to evangelize them. But then what if I mess it up because I'm only in fourth grade and I don't know as much as everybody else does? And like having those things, like those worries when you're a kid and then you, they carry into like your older years, like that stuff doesn't go away overnight. And I think it's important, like we said, to give yourself some grace that like, it's going to take a while to evolve to a different place. And it's okay that it's not going to happen overnight. You didn't get those thoughts overnight. They were ingrained into you, like you said, indoctrinated since you were a kid. And it just takes time to get to a place where you can, you can move beyond it. And if, and if, they keep coming back up. It also doesn't mean that you're doing anything wrong. Right. Right. That you're not like right. failing your deconstruction journey. Right. <laughs> it is not the Holy Spirit convicting you. Yeah. Right. Like all of these things that I, that we've been taught that whether we believe them intellectually anymore or not are like still in there somewhere. Right. They're yep. in, they're in our psyches. They're in our bodies. They're in our nervous systems. Like yep. that just takes time. So yes, yes on the grace. And also like, you're not failing um, it's okay if those things still keep coming up. Yeah. And it's okay to seek out like a therapist or somebody to yes. help guide you through those things. Some of those things, I mean, I know for me, it's like, it's, it's like a tangled spider web in there sometimes. Yes. I'm like, where, where did these thoughts originate? Where did they come from? What is going on? You know? So I think it's just helpful sometimes if you have an outside person who can talk to you, there's nothing wrong. There's no shame in that. So yes, someone with a license. Yes, exactly. License. Exactly. So uh, I would love to talk to you about, you know, you mentioned these 10 stories in the book, and I would love to talk to you about all of them because you go through uh, the eunuch, uh, Jacob, I think Ezekiel, Rahab, obviously Jesus, and kind of talk about all those things. But the one that I really want to land on for just a, a little while to dialogue around is the story of Joseph and his coat of uh, many colors. Because in the book, you, you talk about how you found yourself in this story of Joseph. And then you tell us that kind of one of the takeaways from this story is that it asks us to confront the ways that we uh, typically lash out at people. So I'm wondering if you can take us into this story a little bit to kind of give our listeners a taste of what they can expect in this book, but show us show us a different angle from this story than maybe many of us have been handed uh, grown up. Yeah. So, you know, I think many of us know the story of Jacob and the many colored coat from both the Broadway musical, but yeah. also from, you know, church Sunday school. It's, yeah. it's a, the favorite story. Yeah. Um, and I am really indebted to two scholars, Peterson Toscano and Mixed Chris Page, who mm. have done a lot of work, particularly around what is this coat that Jacob is given uh, or by, that, sorry, that Joseph is given by his mm. father, Jacob. And, um, and, Peterson um, points that this word that is used for this coat is only used one other time in scripture. Um, and it's used for the virgin dress, uh, the the dress of a virgin daughter of the king. So yeah. Peterson, uh, in his quippy way, calls it a princess dress. <laughs> and I think that like, whatever it is, there's something in Joseph that is, you know, outside of the bounds of the masculine identity of yeah. his time, right? And we see that both in the way that his brothers are out in the field and he's like sitting on a hay bale, <laughs> regaling them about his dreams, <laughs> um, but also that he's his father's favorite. Mm -hmm. And and I think that one of the things that was that really surprised me when I started working on this book, I thought that I knew all of these stories really, really well and that there wasn't going to be any major surprises. Just sit down and write it real easy. No worries. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I've been working with these stories forever. Yeah. <laughs> this, will be, this will be great. Um, but this idea that Abraham to Isaac, to Jacob, to Joseph is mm -hmm. so clearly a story of masculine generational trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you read these texts back to back, it's like, oh, these men are 
not doing well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Abraham tries to kill his son. Isaac then has two sons and loves the most masculine one. And mm-hmm. basically the younger one has to run away because he's in danger of being murdered. Then that son has 12 sons and he favors his most feminine son. And it's like, oh, there's there's stuff happening here around gender for mm-hmm. sure. Like masculine identity, but also gender nonconformity. Um, and that both Jacob and Joseph are talked about as preferring to spend time in the company of women, um, spending their time in the tents. Mm-hmm. And so I see in this story, uh, a story of a young person who clearly flaunts gender norms and is also a bit of a I don't know he's a bit of a punk like let's be real (laughs) you know you you have these dreams and you tell your brothers that your older brothers that they're gonna (laughs) bow down to you like it's just it's not gonna get beat up Joseph right (laughs) exactly (laughs) right like there's just something there um and that then when he's given this really extravagant gift of this Mm -hmm. beautiful coat whatever this coat is whether it's a princess dress whether it's just a really expensive garment given to a younger son like the brothers just lose their minds and they take out their rage on this coat, which also is, feels very like, you know, we've heard these stories Mm -hmm. in trans communities of, you know, the parent coming home and finding their kid in a dress and destroying the dress or throwing out all of the makeup, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's something that this, the signifier of the gender nonconformity becomes the, the place of ire. Um, And so I see all of that uh, in this text. And and I was talking a lot in this chapter about a a summer mission trip that I had gone on where I had been really singled out by the adult leaders for being too masculine. Mm -hmm. Um, And that at the time, like I couldn't understand why they were so angry at me all the time. I was just like trying to be myself and move through the world. Like I wasn't I wasn't even trying to flaunt gender norms. Trying I was to just exist. trying to be comfortable. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and they were so angry all the time. And I like just couldn't understand it. And then dealing with this text, I was like, oh, oh, like they saw something in me that scared them and that they wanted yeah. to stamp out. Um, mm. And so putting these two stories into, into conversation, it's like, I started to think about the question of like, what, who other what other people's lights are we kind of pushing out or pushing to the side because we're terrified of what it might reveal about us, about our society, about our communities. Um, And this is everything from like gender nonconforming kids to the prophetic teenagers in our midst who are saying, no, the the way that we're existing in the world is like bad for the climate. It's bad for our neighborhoods. It's bad for um, society. The kids who are saying like, no, please do something about guns. Like, we're dying in our schools, right? That there is something in the voices of young folks that we need to be making space for instead yeah. of trying to to push down or tamp out. Um, and that, that that question then becomes for all of us as a community, right? Yeah. Like who, who are we making space for? How are we lifting up those voices? How are we giving children the space to figure out their own, own identities and to live into them in ways that are healthy and life-giving, um, but that also enrich enrich all of us. After I read your, after I read that chapter, one of the things I was, the pictures I had in my mind was like, what, what voices am I trying to throw into a ditch? Like Joseph's brothers threw him into a ditch and then sold him into slavery. Like what voices do I want to sell away? What voices do I want to throw into a ditch because they make me uncomfortable or whatever? Is it the voice of Young people, like you said, is it the voice of people from the margins? Like what perspective is it that I could learn from if I would just kind of let it in that is easier for me to just throw it away because it's going to disrupt me too much? Yeah. And I think that like the trick with the Joseph story, right, is that Joseph was not, Joseph had to learn how to yeah. temper his prophetic voice. Right. Um, There's a learning and curve. <laughs> there is a learning curve, right? Yeah. That is something that many <laughs> young folks and teens maybe need to learn. And also, yeah. like, we have to give them space to do that yeah. in a way that doesn't take right. away their light. Um, right. And I think that that's the, that's the balance. And that's on us as adults, right? Like, we we get to model and and teach and hold space for <laughs> for young folks. That's right. I was talking. We were. I was talking to my wife about this the other night because we have a six-year-old. Her name is Jordan, 
and she is very strong-minded and she's very vocal and you know we talked about how like you it would be easy to kind of try to crush that spirit because it's easier to make your way through day as a parent which is do it my way and stop arguing with me kind of thing but then we were talking about how like that that voice one day is going to be the voice that grows and evolves that is going to maybe keep her out of an abusive relationship because she's going to speak her mind and it's going to keep her out of these different situations that if we crush that voice and we silence it and we make it go away, that she's not going to have that voice someday. That's maybe going to keep her out of a situation that could be harmful or whatever. So I think to your point, it's about creating that space, especially for young people to really experiment with that voice and kind of learn the proper way to use it or the best ways to use it and the ways to use it that uh, are going to, are going to make their life better and the, and the lives of those around them better as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you have one of the things you said before about uh, the coat, this is something in the book that really, I didn't know this, um, but you talk about the, the coat and how the word used in Hebrew is considered ambiguous and used only one other time to refer to a garment worn by a virgin daughter of the king. I never, I never realized that, 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 that word, I don't even know what the word is in Hebrew. You probably know, but I didn't realize that that word was, was really only used in those two instances. And that, that was like a light bulb in my mind that interesting that this, they could have just used the word jacket, whatever word for jacket was or coat or whatever, but this is a really particular word that seems to be meant for a very specific thing. Yeah. And I think that, that, especially in, in light of like how, Jacob is treating Joseph right like all of that just really sparks to me like there's something there's something about gender happening here beyond just a a bratty (laughs) bratty (laughs) young boy with with his dreams right do you think and I don't know you might even have an answer for this but do you think that like did the writers we can't know for sure obviously but do you have an inkling that the writers were writing these things into the story because this was something that was a wrestling match in their own mind or their own community at their time, or are these different things that are being elevated from the text as time progresses and cultures evolve and things like that? Like, do you think that these particular issues were written into the stories or are they evolving out of the stories as time, as time goes on? My gut sense is that they were written into the stories and Mm -hmm. that from the very beginning, right. That we've, we've got, people that are breaking binaries that aren't fitting in that. I I think that I don't, I don't think that gender was a conversation in the same way that it is now. We just, we know more with science and and identities involved. And also it's impossible for me to read these stories and not see that like anxiety around gender is part of it. Right. Like you can't, you can't read the story of Jacob and Esau and not see gender as like a, that is the massive point of friction between the two of them and between their father of like how they're living out their gendered identity. Um, And I think that that then coming down through to Joseph, like that's all genders all over those texts. Yeah. I think, I think, like you said, it's not the the conversation might've been different then because the science wasn't involved, things like that. But I think it's important to realize that these, these are human beings just like you and me and the, the conversations that they were having then, they might be different than what we are having now, but there are a lot of similarities there as well. And I think, like you said, that you can't help but read those stories, especially if someone like yourself comes along, like you said earlier about reading it through your own lens from your point of view if you share that with me having a much different experience i can't i can't unsee that once you show it to me it's like oh yeah like it it really is there if you think about it from shannon's perspective like it really is there yeah yeah and i and i think that for me like it's not about necessarily going to the text and looking for like who who's trans right Right. (laughs) like who's gay yeah Um, like i'm actually really uninterested in that Mm -hmm. um but I am interested in like where are the where are the binaries and the boundaries being pushed, ruptured, fractured, yep. um, in their own time, right? Yeah. That because that is clear to me that there are things happening within the time as these people are writing these stories that yeah. are like they're grappling with that are about 
gendered expectations or sexuality or bodies, right? The stories of eunuchs all over scripture. That there's something else happening there that I don't have to read back into it and say like, oh, David was gay. Oh, Joseph was trans. Like that to me is less interesting than saying, where are the places where we can see connections yep. and see that people are grappling with similar things yep. um, that might be instructive for our sure. own time. Sure. So good. Well, Shannon, we're just about out of time, but this has been uh, an amazing conversation. I love the work you're doing, love your book. And I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day to come and talk to us. Oh, this is such a gift. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick, I know you mentioned a couple of websites before, but is there any place else online you want to direct people to your work to interact with you, things like that? Yeah, so I'm on all of the social medias and my website is at Shannon TL Kearns. Um, and then all of our queer theology stuff. Queertheology.com is the website. And then we're at Queer Theology or Q Theology on all of the socials. Awesome. I'll put the links in the show notes and so maybe we can do this again sometime. Would love that. Excellent. Lights out, I'm your favorite. Too many ways, been in your place, there's delays. Added up plus signs, it was on the table. Driving and vibing, bring the be later. Wanna make it bigger, just a little bit of. Labor showing up to my space, I'm a fashion dealer. I'm your biggest bidder, meet me in the middle. I just don't wanna settle. Under these lucid dreams, I'm not just a visionary. It's all making sense to me. Not a basic, ain't no ordinary. Stay put, we gon' get higher. You're the product, I could be your buyer. Under these lucid dreams, I'm not thinking off my head, yeah. Just being honest, what's the big difference, yeah? And I've been feeling my own inertia. Just being honest, there's no difference. Baby, we got different phases, give it all, take it all I'm just feeling lazy, just be honest, baby We got different phases, give it all, take it all My libo got so hot, I'm blue lemonade I'm not thinking off my head